Welcome to Do Better Podcast, a digital content hub from Asade, built for minds interested in doing better. Knowledge ideas, perspectives, and research insights on topics that matter. Business advice for better decisions and growth. Latest on the world of innovation and ideas. A look inside a global world beyond borders and an open view on social challenges. You can leave your comments and suggestions on dobetter.asade.edu. In this podcast, we will talk about the state of AI, uh, recommended systems, and probably more interesting these days, uh, how AI and healthcare and AI is contributing to solve these bottlenecks and efficiencies of primary care. And of course, how this can help in a crisis like the one that we're having, the crisis of the coronavirus. Welcome to everybody. This is the podcast of Esade, and today we have Javier Matriente, that is one of the leading experts in AI. Uh, today it's in a special podcast devoted to AI in one of the hottest topics that we have these days, AI and healthcare. And welcome, Javier. Welcome uh, to this podcast. Thanks for having me, Esteva. Javier is the, is the co-founder and the chief technology officer of Kurai, one of these very special companies that works on healthcare and AI. Uh, Javier has a long history. Javier graduated as a telecom engineer and did his PhD in AI in Spain and was serving as a professor in both Spain and the US. Then he moved to the private sector and working in Telefonica and after that moved to Netflix where he became the engineering director and after was the VP of engineering of Quora. Many of you I'm sure use Netflix and Quora. Uh, Javier is a leading expert in AI, particularly in machine learning, in areas such as recommender systems which he contributed to develop uh, the algorithm that suggests you all these things that you glue all day long during this crisis. All these things that you consume in Netflix. Uh, Javier, thank you very much for attending uh, our call. We are honored to have you here. And our first question. AI and health uh, have a long history together, particularly in areas such as test analysis, X-rays, and so on. You sometimes describe AI at CRI more as an augmented intelligence than artificial intelligence itself. What is the augmented intelligence paradigm and why does it matter in areas such as medicine? Yeah, uh, first of all, thank you for the very nice introduction. And uh, this is a, a great question. And, and you were saying that AI and healthcare have a long tradition. And I, I would even go farther, like one of some of the first applications of AI were indeed in healthcare. Um, some of the famous expert systems from 50, 60 years ago were actually applied to things like psychology and even healthcare. So they were applied to the very early diagnostic systems in the University of Pittsburgh were started like 50 years ago. So there is a long history of connection between healthcare and AI because it seems clear when you look at healthcare that there's many things there that could be automated and there are a lot of algorithms that are driving many decisions. Now to your question, yes, uh, I talk about uh, augmented intelligence uh, many times because I think uh, when we 
talk about AI or when we read about AI, we sometimes hear sort of a, a very high definition of AI that seems sort of like science fiction, the robots that are going to come and kill us. And I try to demystify that and say, hey, AI is just a way to augment the intelligence we already have. And particularly in healthcare, this is really, really important, right? Because we are not uh, trying to replace doctors. What we're trying to do is really augment their intelligence by giving them tools that help them make better and faster decisions, right? If you think about a decision that a doctor on average needs to make, right? Uh, what do they need to do? They need to capture information from a patient in about 10 to 15 minutes. They need to remember everything they studied in medical school, plus all the new research that has come up in the last few years. They need to combine all of that and very quickly come up with a decision. That is really, really hard to do. That is, if you ask uh, a mathematician not to use a computer or, or even a calculator, right? That That's... Uh, Clearly, there have to be tools that are able to deal with that information, process it, present it better, and then help uh, doctors and people in general um, make better decisions. That's what I call augmented decisions. It's not a replacement of our intelligence, it's an augmentation of our intelligence. Oh, wonderful. Thank you very much. Many times, most of the cost come from the last mile. And uh, healthcare is no exception. In healthcare, most of the cost, most of the bottleneck that we are assisting right now is in this last mile. And the last mile is primary care. Now we have a lot of sensors. We have the upper watch, bands, and uh, we all believe that these sensors can help us. Uh, what is the approach of Kurai? Using these sensors, different one? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I, I totally agree that one of the biggest problems with healthcare is scaling the last mile, right? It's, it's about uh, scalability and availability of healthcare for everyone. And it, it's becoming harder and harder to do that because, first of all, the population is growing. Second, we also live longer years and therefore there's more diseases. And we want more care, but we don't have more doctors. And as I said before, being a doctor is very hard and dealing with uh, all this information is also very hard. Now, um, there are a lot of sensors and that's really going to become very important. The, the, the reality though, and uh, that's something that uh, we need to acknowledge, is that this kind of sensor that you're mentioning, for example, Apple Watch and so on, they reach a minority of the population, right? And as a matter of fact, it's the minority of the population that usually can pay for expensive healthcare because those are the rich people. So I think our approach to Cura is saying, how can we use AI and the latest technologies for things that the average person and even more, those that have difficulties accessing healthcare can actually access it easier. And that's not, unfortunately, it's not going to be the Apple Watch. We're not going to be able to send an Apple Watch to every citizen, right? But language and everything that deals with language is something that everyone has, right? So applying things like natural language processing and things like image recognition, because almost everyone can send a picture on a phone or can send a video those things scale much better 
for the time being. So our hope is that eventually over time, we are going to be able to scale also different kinds of sensors and we're going to, we're going to be able to have uh, the ability to read uh, everyone's um, temperature and heart rate and heartbeat uh, from their homes. And I think we're not very far from that. But at the time being, I think the way to scale healthcare is using the channels of communication that most people have, which are uh, really language, text, uh, voice, uh, images. That's something that it's cheap, it's already available, and there's a lot that you can do with uh, that kind of technology, right? If you think about it, most of what doctors will do in real life is talk to patients, ask questions, get answers from patients. Of course, they will take measures, and uh, that's uh, something that it's also useful. But a lot of the medical practice, particularly in primary care, is about asking questions and getting answers from the patients. Natural language is fantastic. It's a rich universal approach that even if you are basic, you can normally still talk, which is, which is a fantastic. But the other aspect is medical diagnosis. And in medical mm -hmm. diagnosis, we had expert systems like uh, in, in the beginning, of in the 80s and so on, and then we move, and now we are in the in the decade of data. Everything is data, and everything is deep learning in, in many areas. But uh, you need a lot of data. In your case, what the where the data comes from? Yeah, that, that's that's a really good question, and that was one of my honestly one of my concerns when I got into medical AI because I was coming from Netflix and Quora and we had tons of data over there, right? And it's like, my question was, where are we gonna get the data from? It's not easy to get that data. Now, it turns out that uh, you can combine in medical uh, AI, combine very different kinds of sources of data and they're, none of them is perfect, <laughs> but if you combine them in the right way, you can actually leverage the uh, benefits of each kind of data. So for example, uh, one particular kind of data that's interesting is electronic health records, right? So electronic health records, for those that are not familiar, basically it's the digital, digital transcript of everything that happens in a medical visit, right? So that's when you go to a medical visit and you see the doctors typing in and entering things into a computer, that goes into a medical record, which is an electronic one, and that uh, there's information there. There's notes from the doctors, there's codes about diagnosis and symptoms and results from the labs. So that's a very interesting source of data. Of course, traditionally that data has only been available in the medical systems. So that's one of the reasons that we at Curie would partner, for example, with uh, Stanford Hospital, uh, with the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and we've worked with their medical data because that uh, that's a way to bootstrap the systems. Now, the medical health records have a lot of mistakes and errors, and they haven't really been designed to learn machine learning algorithms, so they're not a silver bullet. So you need, as I said before, you need to combine them with different kinds of data. Uh, we actually use expert systems. Believe it or not, the expert systems from years ago, which have been evolving for many years, are really interesting because they can uh, they really condense uh, centuries of knowledge of medical uh, uh, knowledge into rules and into sort of like probabilistic networks. So you can use those systems 
to actually generate data. As a matter of fact, one of our most unique approaches, and we've published uh, a couple of papers about that at Curie, is we use the combination of synthetic data generated from the expert systems with natural data coming from electronic health records and other places. So at the end of the day, I would say the combination of synthetic data from expert systems, uh, data from electronic health records, plus data that you basically extract from uh, medical uh, publications, if you combine those three, you end up having a lot of very interesting data. And uh, the three of them have different properties and have different pros and cons, but the combination is very unique and uh, very interesting. This is super interesting. Uh, absolutely, synthetic data is on the rise and people are using uh, more and more and more to complement existing data and to augment data, particularly in the areas where synthetic data in these spaces where synthetic data performs very well. This is a fantastic approach. On, mm -hmm. on another side, uh, healthcare is a major spending for our governments. And the US spends almost 14.4% of the GDP France, Germany, around 9%, the UK is about 0.5%, Spain spends 6% of the GDP. However, with this enormous level of expense, of expense we still have long delays, long waiting lists. Uh, will AI ever solve these problems? Um, well, that is our hope, right? That's exactly what uh, we're trying to work at Curie. I mean, our hope is that we can implement uh, online, always on, always available, very easy to access um, medical service that is precisely doing what you're saying. So scaling the last mile, the primary care access, and it's doing that through automation and AI. Right, and uh, as I said at the beginning, is doing that not by by entirely replacing doctors, but by augmenting them. Um, the the approach that we have at Curai is a combination of we have actually three levels. We have AI. We also have what we call health coaches, which are humans with medical uh, knowledge but not licensed physicians. And then we have licensed physicians. Right, so we have three levels of sort of like depth and knowledge. And we combine those in a way that we make the system scalable. And uh, there are many ways you can do that, but uh, one of them is you can uh, basically leverage the ability of the AI to capture and extract the, the right kind of information from the patient in the initial phases of the interview. And then, inject what the AI is capturing from that conversation in order to provide sort of like suggestions to the um, uh, to the physicians as they're making their diagnosis and their uh, treatment plans. Another uh, kind of interesting thing that we have, uh, we came to the realization very soon is traditional um, telehealth or telemedicine has used video and video has a number of uh, issues. Uh, one in particular is that it's very hard to parallelize and automate, right? If you're connected with a physician over video for 10 minutes, 
or for 30 minutes, those are 10 minutes or 30 minutes that the physician has to spend only talking to you in the video. And basically there's no way that you can scale that. It's, it's what it is. It's 30 minutes of doctor time. Now, text on the other way, on the other hand, it's very interesting because if you have a text conversation with a physician, you can inject AI and you can paralyze and you can have sort of like a much more agile and scalable approach to having this kind of medical conversations without the need of having sort of like synchronous face-to-face communication. And you can inject that at the end if needed, but you can leverage a lot of the benefits of asynchronous messaging and text communication. And that goes a very long way. And that's, that's the approach we're using at QRI. That's fantastic. Uh, one thing that you mentioned before is natural language. Uh, when we work in user interfaces, we are still using the same metaphors of the 70s of Alan Kay in Palo Alto. We still have folders, we still have a desktop, we have a mouse, we click on the mouse, we drag and drop uh, things around the desktop. Of course, during these years, we make them 3D, then flat again, we painted them, but this is still the same metaphor. In contrast to that, when we talk about language, it's a blank slate. It's a blank slate full of opportunities. There is no established user interface for <coughs> natural language. Uh, what are the opportunities that you think that these uh, help you, and what are the challenge, the challenges for a company like yours? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I, I think we. You know, we, we, des- we designed some interface paradigms to interact with computers uh, because that, that's the best thing we had, right? So the mouse uh, now seems an obvious way to interact with a computer, but it's not that obvious. It's just something that uh, work and somebody invented and it is not a natural sort of like uh, device to be using to, to interact with particularly with the complex interface, right? Um, and clicking and dropping and, and dragging is not, is not an, an obvious way. So I think um, we as humans, we do have much more r- richer modes of communication and particularly language is the obvious one, right? So language uh, is, is the way that we should uh, aspire to communicate with many of these rich interfaces. Now it is challenging and I'm sure many of you have experienced frustration by interacting with Amazon's Alexa or uh, Google Home or Google Assistant or any of these devices or Siri, right? Um, But I think even though uh, we sometimes experience frustration, when they work, there's also sort of like the delight of like, whoa, this is really what it should be, right? So I think uh, the... Uh, the idea that natural language is the right mode of interaction uh, with computers is uh, at this point pretty obvious. And it's more a matter of is the technology going to be able to catch up, right? And, and there, there's a lot of uh, advances recently. I mean, NLP just five years ago almost was not even using deep learning, right? So uh, th- there was uh, a lot of. Uh, uh, a structure 
approach to to dialogue systems and frame-based uh, dialogue systems and whatnot there's a lot of improvements in the past uh, 10 to 5 years that are slowly sort of like making a difference and we've seen some early impressive demos from some of the big companies working in 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 this space like google and so on and i'm very uh, i'm convinced that in the next 5 years we are going to see a huge improvement of the interaction uh, the natural language interaction between humans and computers and it's going to become sort of like the default paradigm for hci I, I that, that's wonderful. I think that everybody agrees that natural language will be kind of a normal way to interact for both for both very complex things and very simple things. That changing a channel on the TV will be natural language, but also explaining what happens to us to a doctor will be natural language. But how far are we from this widespread use? How far are we from having cry in Alexa or in Google Assistant? Um, I, I don't think we're very far, to be honest. I think, um, like everything in, in technology, right? Mm, progress is nonlinear. <laughs> there are usually sort of like breakthroughs and things move very quickly when those, uh, breakthroughs are, are applied or commercialized or, or in, integrated into products. So I think uh we're already at the point where a lot of the mm, research approaches are really good in nlp and they there's like question answering systems that are already performing better than humans right uh it's by some definitions of course it's it's hard to agree that that's uh they 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 are as smart as a human but for some metrics some question answering systems and there's uh even automated translation and so on, it's very, very good at this point. Now, uh, purely mm, uh, natural uh, language system that is able to do uh, things that are convincingly mm, feel good for the user. Again, we are currently at the demo stage and we've seen some of those, but my prediction is that in the next five years, that's gonna become sort of like the de facto uh, interface for many um, systems and it's going to be mm, changing the way that we interact with uh, computers now I, I i gotta say like uh there's um there's different modes for nlp right there's a voice and there's also language i think it's going to be applied to both so i'm not particularly saying that it's only going to be voice um control it could be text control but i think in any case, it's going to be natural language um, in interacting via text or via voices with our computers. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Nobody uses fonts to talk anymore. We all text. Yep. <laughs> we all text yeah, everywhere. Yeah. That thing yeah. of talking is so nighty. So <laughs> that's, that's over. <laughs> but let's dream for a second. Let's say that tomorrow the National Health System of Spain asks you for help. And God knows that we need help. Uh, what could be your contribution? Well, that's that's a, a it's a great question. I think uh, one of the things that I uh, I get I have to be realistic about is uh, the scale at which uh, 
we at QRI were operating, right? So uh, we're a small startup uh, with about 30 people and we are starting on doing this. So uh, we, if, if, a, if a big institution, and we're, we have collaborations, as I mentioned before, with uh, some hospitals, uh, but they're all early sort of like stage collaborations. Uh, the, the, the honest answer to this, if, if a big institution, like say the uh, health minister of uh, Spain said, hey, we need your help, can you deliver healthcare to uh, all the million of uh, patients in, in, in Spain, um, the answer would be, we're not ready. Uh, we need some time and we're uh, at the early stage of growing and scaling this. Uh, for example, now Curi is not, all, it's not even available in all the, of the US, uh, it's only available in California. So we uh, are scaling in little by little and making sure that we're able to sort of like scale and uh, it's going to take a little bit of time and a lot of work <laughs> to get to a point that we feel like we can scale to many more uh, millions of people. Now, that being said, the, 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 the volume, the overall volume of people in California is roughly comparable to that in Spain. So, uh, of course, mm, mm, it, it could work, but uh, mm, it would be hard for us to take on uh, another country. Now, the other interesting thing now that I think about it is uh, most of our approaches in NLP right now, they're, they've only been implemented in English. And that's something that we have in the roadmap that we have to integrate multilingual. It's not, it's not that hard nowadays, uh, believe it or not, many of the things and the tools that you implement in one language, because they're so powerful multilingual models out there uh it's not hard to adapt in, uh to other languages but that's something we would need to do that's great uh, well i'm convinced i'm completely convinced that uh, primary healthcare in not so many years will be full of ai everywhere because mm -hmm. a natural language will be the approach texting and so on on the other side i would like to take the advantage of having you here and you are an expert in recommended systems Believe it or not, recommended systems are in all our classes. Many of our professors talk and explain recommended systems, particularly the ones that you built, the ones in Netflix. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, so it's, it's very popular. Uh, uh, having you here, can you explain us a little bit what is the business value and, and how can we, can we this quantified somehow of uh, these recommended systems in, in business? For sure, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> going to your question, I think um, one of the things that I would start my talks saying when I was at Netflix, I would say at Netflix, everything is a recommendation. So that's how valuable <laughs> recommendations were and are at Netflix. Like everything you see on the service, including when you're searching, at the end of the day is a recommendation, right? Because all the interface and how it reacts and what it responds to and what you're being offered is tailored, is personalized, and it's really geared towards recommending things that you might be interested on. So um, the, it, it, it has a, a huge uh, business value 
which was actually quantified at one point in, in I don't know uh, how many, uh, many uh, millions of dollars uh, that, it, that it had, because it was, it's not hard to quantify, as a matter of fact, uh, at least to some extent, right? Uh, uh, as you may know, whenever we do uh, in industry, whenever we do any experiment with any kind of improvement to a recommender, recommender system, we do what's called an A-B test, right? So basically we present version A of the recommender system and version B of the recommender system. Then we measure what's the difference for the user and how they respond. So a relatively easy um, experiment to do is to say, okay, I'm gonna remove all the recommendations and I'm gonna see what's the effect of the recommendations that this has on the actual business. And that's something that uh, every now and then we used to do a Netflix just for a very small subset of people and for a small period of time because it would it meant a loss of a lot of uh, money. But you can measure actually the impact, and the impact is is really really huge, right? It's 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 incredible how uh, as much as people might think like, oh, these recommendations I'm getting they're not that great and they're not the best they could. If they didn't have those recommendations, they probably wouldn't be even using uh, a service like Netflix or YouTube or uh, Quora. That's great. Uh, we all use recommender systems. We love recommender systems, but we also are very frustrated with recommender systems because they always recommend us what we know we like. So for example, I, I love sci-fi and then they keep recommending me sci-fi movies or sci-fi films. But uh, the problem is that they keep getting worse because, well, you have seen all the good ones. And do you think there is any chance that any day they could find the things that maybe we like, but we don't know yet? Um, yes, I mean, hopefully the answer is yes. Right? Uh, I, I, I mean, the, the concept you're talking about is very well known and studied in recommender systems is known as serendipity, right? Serendipity is, when you find something that you didn't know you were looking for. And there's a lot of uh, work in the, how to include this serendipity into the algorithms. And another way to think about it is the well-known trade-off between exploration and exploitation, right? So exploitation means presenting more of the things that I know you like. Exploration is presenting something that yeah, I'm not sure you're going to like, but it's gonna uh, give me more information about you and it's gonna enable you to uh, explore a different area of the catalog. So any well-designed uh, recommender system has to include uh, a way to sort of like tune the explore, exploit uh, trade-off. And I could, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a very long topic I could go on for, for hours about this, but uh, the, the, the bottom line is the less you know about a user, the more you need to encourage that user to explore. So the more you need to tune the algorithm for exploration versus exploitation. However, if I have shown you all different kinds of things in the catalog, and it turns out you've always said no to everything except sci-fi, then I need to tune down the exploration and say, okay, well then may, maybe stay with all the, uh, he likes his sci-fi. Now, I do think there's a lot 
still a lot of room for uh, improvement and a lot of room for growth and 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 also mm, one of the tricky things with uh, recommender systems is it's it's unclear what's the right objective function that they need to optimize for and there's a lot of sort of uh, discussion about that um, particularly for example in the context of YouTube and how they might be promoting some particular point extreme point of views or they might just be optimizing for engagement right but I'll, I'll give you one example when we at Netflix asked people what they liked and what they wanted to be recommended everyone had a very very high brow concept of themselves so everyone would say oh I want documentaries and I want the best movies that won all the Oscars but when we measure what they were watching turned out they were watching just you know they, they came home they were tired after a day at work or not and they would just tune into a, a dumb comedy show just because they wanted to laugh they didn't want to acknowledge that they liked that but they were actually watching it so then there was the tricky decision of should we optimize for what the user says that they want to watch or for what the user actually watches at the end right so there's questions like this that are very interesting and very tricky but uh, it is uh, it is something that uh, fundamentally when i have conversations like this with people that tell me hey you're recommending things that are different from the ones i want this i want the concept of what people want is different from what they do so it's uh, it's an interesting i think psychological uh, effect that we could talk for some time oh, wonderful <laughs> in Isada, we have a data science program and uh, we have data science students they, they they study quite a lot of machine learning and also cloud computing basically aws and then in machine learning uh, we use mostly tabular data and in tabular data we use most of our students we spend a lot of time with getting boosting machines boost, uh, all these family of things and pre-processing finding the best hyperparameters how to handle categorical data with this we are boosting machines and so on and it seems that we are kind of stuck there i mean this is the state of the art and it seems that we there is no game changer in this area so in your opinion in tabular data uh, will be any change in the future or this is what we have yeah that that is a fascinating question again one that we could go on for a long uh, conversation because it's it's there's not an, an easy answer i agree with you i think um gradient boosting machines or gradient boost, boosted decision trees are a really really powerful approach that is um, almost my default approach to anything in fact i even usually <laughs> start simpler and go for a logistic regression first and then uh, a gbm and then only complicate things if really necessary now mm, there's a lot of debate right now about whether for categorical variables uh deep neural nets are better or not and i'm still honestly not convinced one way or the other 
if you if you look at some of the Kaggle competitions, it is true that most of them are actually won by a combination of both. <laughs> There's uh, the combination of gradient boosted decision trees and then uh, categorical embed embeddings put into some kind of neural network. I think that that's the kind of like the state of the art winning approach. Now, would I recommend that uh, in practice to a company? Well, it really depends. Uh, it really depends. And I, I, I can go back to the recommender system uh, community where we have exactly the same discussion because, in fact, recommender systems have a lot of uh, uh, similar kind of data, right? So it's based on matrices and sort of like tabular data too. Um, so in in recommender systems, uh, most of the companies, I wouldn't say most, but many companies switched to neural nets in the past mm, three to five years. Google started doing that about five years ago. They published a few uh, papers on it. They claimed uh, improved results. Now the reality is, and this is very um, fascinating, is that when you talk to the people in those teams, they didn't really switch to uh, embeddings and neural nets so much for the accuracy gains, but more because uh, of the engineering um, improvements that they got out of uh, basically reducing the amount of feature engineering that they needed to do and enabling faster innovation and faster iteration. Now, that for me is really not uh, intuitive and it's a little bit of a mind-blowing thing. I didn't believe it at first, so I'm, I'm just saying it. And, and when I heard it first, I, I couldn't believe that a neural net, a deep neural net with many layers and different approaches to introducing embeddings and whatnot and projections could be simpler to maintain and faster to innovate than a gradient boost decision tree. But the reality, Esteban, if, you, if you've seen some of those approaches, I mean, every, every time you have a GBM or a logistic regression, you are going to be spending a lot of time on feature engineering. And that is almost an art, right? It's like you need to really understand the domain. You need to encode the, the variable in a, in a particular way. You need to transform the, the, the features. You need to normalize them. It's a lot of uh, work and a lot of uh, data science that is behind it. While Many of these approaches to injecting the same information into a neural net, it's more, I would call it automatic, right? And, and if you start including things like AutoML and uh, architecture search in neural net, these things almost happen magically. I mean, you need a lot of machines like Google has, but they, they happen, right? So at this point, uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's a clear winner, but there are situations and there are places where many people claim rightfully so that uh, you know that uh, deep neural nets are superior to gbms for uh categorical data if you if you follow the for example the online uh fast ai uh course from jeremy Howard, he's a he's a a strong proponent and believer that uh deep neural net for, for tabular data are actually better than GBMs. And there are a few examples there which are pretty convincing, but there's also examples that I can find 
the other way around. So it's 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 an interesting uh, debate, and I don't think there's a, there's a clear answer to to this. So I think teaching GBMs for now as a default is good, but I wouldn't discard sort of like going into deep neural nets as a a way to extend sort of like the uh, uh, the, the the toolkit. The other thing with uh, deep neural nets, I will say. And Netflix has published about it. Is that once you start, for example, if you have tabular data but you want to introduce things like time sequences, it's very hard to do it with a GBM. It is much easier to do it with a neural net, right? Because if you you can combine, uh, you can even combine convolutional neural nets with recurrent neural nets and with um, embeddings, and then you start having sort of like some architectures that are really powerful. And Netflix did publish that once they started to take into account sort of sequence and timing, then neural nets beat the GBMs because they didn't really have a very good way to inject time and sequence information into the GBM. Sorry, it was a long answer, but I hope <laughs> no, <laughs> I, 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 answer, I answer your question. Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful answer. Yeah, this, this fast AI course is very popular among our students, I mean, many take them and so on. And, and we also work a lot with, uh, with platforms like AWS. And mm -hmm. when you are in a platform, it's what you say. I mean, everything is ready for deep learning. And SageMaker, well, if you have a deep learning model, everything is there for you. Uh, so at the end of the day, and you have all the processors, you have everything. At the end of the day, it takes you less time. To implement these things that not because they are they consume less cpu or anything that's because you have the tools and the tools are ready and the tools are there so it's it's a fantastic thing on the other side we have been because of these tools and many developments that deep learning it's kind of eating <laughs> machine learning in many ways but there are other things that are happening we we have been talking about synthetic mm -hmm. data and the use of synthetic data for semi-supervised learning you have things like causality and causality is entering now the the recommender system field you have many other things do you do you see anything that could disrupt this machine learning panorama or we are set with deep learning and that's it Oh, no, definitely not. I mean, I think deep learning uh, has already happened, right? It's, it's, it's history. Now, the question is where, what's next, right? And when I say it's history, I don't mean it's useless. It's like, it's really useful, but it's already here. So the, the question should be like, what, what is next? And I think, I mean, there, there's a few areas that are really interesting. Some that we already discussed, as you, uh, as you said, I'm, I'm really, interested in this notion of uh, synthetic data, but I'm interested also from the perspective of how to inject priors and how to inject knowledge and invariance into machine learning systems, right? So one of the real uh, big debates in AI is uh, how much of the knowledge should be innate and therefore uh, injected into the structure and the architecture of the model that is being learned and how much needs to be learned, right? And there's extremes uh, uh, of people from Jan LeCun saying that everything has to be learned to uh, other people on the other team saying, no, there needs to be a lot of structure and, and, and a lot of uh, mm, mm, priors in the system. Otherwise, 
it is impossible that we're going to be able to build smart AI. And I, I really believe that at the end of the day, it's a combination of both, right? So injecting this combination of structure, prior knowledge, expertise, if you will, into systems, and then combine it with uh, learning is something that, although there is obviously a lot of research around, we still haven't solved, right? So I think that's a very, very important uh, area that we're gonna see huge improvement and advancement. And, and uh, synthetic data is one approach to it because you, as I said before, you can generate synthetic data with uh, from structure expert systems or similar, which are injecting structure into the data set itself. So that's, that's a, a powerful approach. Uh, besides that, I think, um, you know, there are other very hot sort of uh, research areas like self-supervision and transfer learning, which now mm -hmm. we all use. I think it's, it's, a, it's a key area that I think hasn't e even made it to the, you know, to the, we, we can do more of. Uh, so this notion of being able uh, to learn mm, on a particular problem, then transfer that knowledge that you've learned on a particular problem to a different, relatively similar problem, that's really powerful. It's, it's been key for most of the NLP advances in the past few years, and it's uh, also uh, being applied to some image processing, but there's a lot more there that we, uh, we will be able to do. Uh, I think uh, AutoML uh, is another area that is very, exciting and very uh, powerful, right? This notion of we can have uh, machine learning models or meta models that learn what are the uh, optimal parameters and the ar optimal architectures by themselves, right? So basically they're doing the work of a data scientist by basically trying different architecture and different models and tuning them for solving a, a given problem that's uh, extremely powerful and something that kind of connects uh, the deep learning to the old school genetic algorithms that uh, sort of like evolved and, and, and learn from themselves, right? So I think uh, there, there's, and of course, there's also the whole reinforcement learning approach, all the uh, uh, big advances that we've seen from uh, games being played from, uh, chess to go to poker and and how reinforcement learning is, is the key paradigm in all of those. Uh, I think those are all areas that are not strictly speaking deep learning and they're really, really uh, important and we're going to see big things happening soon. That's fantastic. We are so focused many times on the algorithms. The algorithms are kind of magical, all these new constructions. But uh, what do you think? What is more important, the algorithms or the data? Yeah, uh, that's a very uh, another very hot debate, and and I think I think the the answer is that uh, you need a combined approach to both, right? So mm, the best algorithm cannot be trained on useless data. And the best data doesn't actually work unless you use the right algorithm. So I think that the, the thing that people 
sometimes forget is that mm, there's uh, both things actually go hand in hand and you need to uh, adapt your approach to the data and you need to adapt the data to the approach. I, I had an example uh, of this uh, that I've presented several times in some of the courses that I've given where if you, for, for example, if, you data, if your data is linear, right, because you've engineered your features in a way that they are linear and you've been using a logistic regression for some time and all of a sudden you tried a GBM, you might wrongly decide that the GBM doesn't work and doesn't improve what you're doing. You're like, oh, this GBM is really sucks, right? Because I'm giving, I'm getting the same result or worse result. Now, what you don't realize is that the reason it's doing that is because you have prepared the data for a linear model. So, of course, the nonlinearities that the GBM introduces are not going to matter. Now, if you if you redo your feature engineering and now you start injecting sort of like um, nonlinearities in your features and you uh, add more complex features into the model, it turns out that the GBM beats the logistic regression. So you basically have to increase the complexity of your data when you increase the complexity of your model, right? Otherwise, it doesn't matter. So I think that is, it's, uh, that's why both uh, approaches uh, sort of like need to go hand in hand and you can't think independently about one or the other. And I think that's what people uh, mistake sometimes. They, they fix the model and they say, okay, now I'm gonna get more data and then they don't see improvement or the other way around. They fix the data and they try different models on the same data in the same way. And like, wait, that's not gonna, that's not gonna work because you need to prepare the data differently depending on where it goes, right? Mm -hmm. That should be interesting. One thing that is that happens a lot, <laughs> now many companies, the main problem is how we uh, product uh, how do we make products of our machine learning because in many companies what we do or what we try to do is to transform functions that you have in the company into models that are put into the cloud and by doing that we gain this um, almost zero marginal cost infinite scalability and or immediate uh, deployment all these characteristics that characterize any digital company but uh, how different is the the current research and the current production of ml the defops movement goes into this direction but it seems that there is a lot of tension there yeah uh it's a, it's a good question i think you know there's always been sort of a a, a pretty big separation between what was presented in the uh, research conferences and then what was being introduced actually in in the products right I, I do think though that nowadays that distance is becoming smaller and smaller right and the reason for that is the huge availability of one open source frameworks right uh, things like tensorflow and pytorch um they're, they're really sort of like they're they're democratizing access to sort of uh, this kind of uh, ready-to-use platforms that are all, both of them almost ready to use in production, right? So you can actually uh, use both uh, TensorFlow or PyTorch in production. The other one 
is, uh, of course, the availability of those tools, even in cloud environments, right? So you can, you can go to AWS or to GCP or to Microsoft Azure, and they will have sort of like uh, machines and infrastructure with those environments ready to go where you can basically say, hey, I'm going to use a BERT uh, language model uh, in production. And it's, uh, you I mean, you're still going to, you're, you're still going to have to, going to have to work on it, but it's going to be much easier than it was before when you had to set up on your own server. So I think, yes, there is, uh, there is distance still between what is being done in research and what goes into production. And one of it is particularly the scale and the cost, right? Some of the, some of the things we see in research, uh, some of these models uh, like OpenAI's GPT-2 and things like that, they take a huge, huge resources to train, right? So there's no way a company is gonna spend that much money in, in, in GPUs uh, in the cloud or anywhere to make it happen. But on the other hand, those models, once they've, they've been trained because of transfer learning, they can be used. And uh, I mean, GPT-2 is too big and uh, still very costly to use for inference, but there are some uh, smaller uh, versions that are actually uh, possible to use in, in production. So I think the distance between research and production has gone down. Uh, another reason for that, I think, is because a lot of the uh, most advanced research right now is coming from industry, like places like Google, Fair at Facebook, uh, even OpenAI, uh, Microsoft. They are all sort of like doing a lot of the uh, latest research uh, because they have access to this kind of like compute power. And that makes it that things are usually ready to use in production. Uh, sooner than than it was before i mean again it's still there is a distance but i think it's that distance is going down ah, fantastic yeah, i completely agree i mean most of the research or many a lot of the research comes from industry and also you have seen reductions in price in ai deployment in all the platforms outstanding reduction to price in aws was 75 percent in the yeah. last months because of the new processors it's a completely different game. One last thing. <laughs> we decided we, we, we try, we include AI, and particularly machine learning, in all our programs. But uh, it's, we are kind of blind, and I think all business schools are kind of blind, because we are not sure what to do, when to do it, what is the level that is most appropriate, and so on. What could be your advice in this area for business schools like us? Yeah, uh, I, I think, um, by the way, I, 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 I taught in a business school for a couple of years. So I, I think I, 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 I can empathize uh, with, um, you know, the, the kind of things that you might be trying to teach or your kind of audience. I think uh, data, data science and machine learning is going to be well i mean it it is already but it's even more in the future it is going to be a revolutionary and very important thing for business in general and mm, 
not only for technology businesses, for any business, right? Uh, one of the really interesting uh, things that I'm seeing here in the Silicon Valley is that a lot of the people that starting companies as data scientists, they eventually move into being business managers and then they become executives. And the reason is very obvious is because now business is about understanding data more than any that it has been ever in the past, right? A lot of businesses are decisions are now based on processing uh, data, uh, understanding trends in data, and then inferring models from that and then making projections to the future. So I think understanding data and data science uh, for business people in general is key. Uh, and even further uh, than that, I think understanding the capabilities of uh, technology like uh, AI and machine learning is also very, very important. And, and the way to approach it from my perspective, as I said at the beginning, is to uh, demystify, right, what AI and machine learning is and say, really, AI is about automating processes that we used to do in a manual way before. And now we're going to do much more efficiently because you can automate it and you can generalize them in a way that we couldn't do before, right? So if you think about it, it's not much different from the industrial revolution, but it's industrial revolution applied to knowledge and decision making, right? Which is huge. <laughs> so I think uh, if you think about it this way, you come to the conclusion that uh, data, data science and uh, AI slash automation uh, should be, in my opinion, injected in, in, in sort of like the whole curriculum of anyone that is uh, going to be uh, a business leader in in the next few years, for sure. Indeed, we are we are facing a new revolution, a new revolution of data that is characterized by AI, and also soon the new revolution in healthcare. And if you think of the new revolution in healthcare, think of Cry. Probably they are going to be one of the leaders of the revolution. Uh, thank you very much, Xavier, for being with us. And thank you very much for all this enlightening conversation that we had. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Esteva. And uh, always great to talk to you. And also, uh, I don't know if we've even said, but I'm, uh, I am originally from Barcelona, so I'm also very connected to the city. And it's always great to be talking to somebody who is uh, still in my hometown. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. If you still want to learn more, remember, you can register on our platform, dobetter.asade.edu. That was all for today. Until next time, thank you.